0: The following is a presentation from the MJ cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I wanna see you! (laughs) I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass you become the bass. Let the music write itself.
1: I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. My name is Jamin Bull, and I'm thrilled to be back in the saddle discussing all things Michael Jackson. Here we are, 10 or so years later, <laughs> doing it again. And it's very, very exciting to be able to do this. We've got lots of news and things to discover that have happened. All over the Christmas break since we've been on break for a few months, and I can't wait to dig into it all with my dear friend and co-host Charlie Thompson. Charlie, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. You okay? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a, it's a bright, sunny morning here in Brisbane. It's sort of coming out to the end of summer now, so it's starting to cool down, which I'm excited by because it's been a very hot summer. How are things in England? They're pretty temperate at the moment.
0: They're pretty mild. Probably two weeks ago, I was still going out with two coats and a scarf on, and now I'm going out with a light jacket. It's all suddenly changed. It's a bit too balmy for February, really. It's all a bit disturbing. Global
1: warming in action. Yeah, yes, you're right. Well, on that note, let's open up a uh, new season of the MJ cast. We've been on break and a lot has happened since late last year when we recorded with Taj around Christmas time. And we'll try to work through the news, I think, as it happened over the past few months. I've tried to order the the news chronologically. One kind of interesting thing that happened was the photographer, Lester Cohen, who photographed Michael on Captain EO, during his meeting with President Bush, and also when Michael was performing for MTV in 1995. He's released some some never-before-seen photographs of Michael on the set of Remember the Time in 1992. Of course, that short film was directed by John Singleton. I think we've got around three or so different images that have come out, and I wanted to know your thoughts on them.
0: Well, I mean, if you hadn't told me that they were never-before-seen images, then I probably would have thought I'd already seen them, it's nice that he's released them, <laughs> but they just look like every other photo that's ever been released of Michael on the set of Remember the Times. So there wasn't anything particularly revelatory about them or like, oh, wow, I can't
1: believe what an amazing picture that is, if you know what I mean. No, no, that's true. I mean, they are much like many of the other photos we've seen on the set. Um, I just think that they're, they're beautifully shot. The colors are really, really warm and nice. I've always wondered, like, what do you think about Remember the Time? as a video. Reflecting back on it, do you think it it it's one of Michael's greatest?
0: I think it's up there. I definitely think it's in the top 10. The one thing that I don't really like about it is Michael's styling. Mm. Is it his first screen kiss? I think it might be. I don't believe... Does he... Uh, doesn't he just hug... Does he hug Tatiana at the end of... Um,
1: the way you make me feel, or does he kiss her? I thought he just hung her. I think you might be right. I think it might be his first on-screen kiss. It's his first on-screen kiss, and it's just a bit
0: bizarre because you've got this um, swooning, but he's made up and his hair is done in a sort of a um, feminine way. It's probably the most feminine look that he'd had in public up to that point, and it's all just a bit strange, really. I mean, I know I'm going to get shit, I, even as I'm saying this right now, I, I can see the tweets that are going to start coming in, but I just don't like the styling. I mean, he looks fine. I'm not saying he looks bad. I'm just saying it doesn't really work with the, it's just strange, you know, to have the female love interest swooning over a guy that's got a better perm and a better makeup job than she's got. You know what I mean? <laughs> and the
1: physicality of the kiss is also kind of odd. Oh, how it's so cringeworthy. It's terrible. She's like crouching down, and he he's like over her. It, it reminds me of the uh, mythical creatures, the Dementors in Harry Potter. He's like kind of sucking her soul out of her. It's a it's a horrible, <laughs> yeah, horrible. It's, it's incredibly awkward.
0: It's just painful to watch. Really, it's just like it, it, he looks like someone that's never kissed someone before. That's what it looks like when you watch it. Is is just completely unbelievable. Everything about it is not believable. And I know that that is not a, a great or particularly um, wounding criticism to make of a video where somebody, you know, dissolves into sand. But the love interest aspect of the video doesn't really work. Whereas if he'd been styled like he was, for example, in the Panther sequence of not that much earlier, or as he was in the, who is it video, for example, it would have been a lot more believable. It just doesn't really work for me, but the video overall, the choreography is amazing. It's obviously a huge budget the the storyline is great. It's just the love interest section for me is, is not, not working. What made you ask?
1: Do you have an issue with it? I've got mixed feelings about it. I always have. Obviously, it's extremely high budget. The CGI stuff in it is incredible. They've put a lot of money into the sets and the look. And like you said, that the, there's things that, about it that are stand out. Like the choreography is incredible. The song is incredible. Like there are some really great things about it. But then there's these things that stand out that kind of like <laughs> almost ruin it for me. The acting in it. Is horrific, like Magic Johnson in it. He's okay. Like <laughs> there's some there's some terrible, terrible moments in it. And yeah, I'm not the hugest fan of Michael's look, the gold skivvy, the shirt. No, I'm not scared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah.
0: although you just mentioned Magic Johnson, what I should say is that the political aspect of the video is brilliant. So, firstly, mm-hmm. his devotion to which was a years-long dream of his according to Jermaine's book to actually correct the historical record and make a film about ancient Egypt where all the cast were black whereas in Cleopatra starring his friend Elizabeth Taylor as an all-white cast playing Egyptians and also Magic Johnson had had recently announced that he had um, been diagnosed with HIV, I believe. And at the time there was a huge stigma still around HIV and AIDS. And Michael hiring him to be in the video was quite a political act on his part. It's something that is really, really very, very much to be commended. That was a fantastic thing that he did giving magic Johnson that platform and embracing him in that way in the climate at the time so politically as well as a political statement i think it's brilliant it's just that one aspect of the video that doesn't really work for me
1: yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the video in the future because it's going to be one of those ones that will be very hard to remaster and re-release what they did with beat it and thriller coming out in 4k obviously was incredible and they look amazing, but those short films only have practical effects. They don't have any digital effects. Whereas remember the time is full of really early CGI that would not have been created or rendered as separate assets in 4K. So when they do decide to try to make, you know, rescan it and re, you know, remaster it in 4K, I haven't, I just think it's going to be almost impossible to do the effects in that resolution unless they upscale the effects separately or remake the effects, I'm doubtful we'll ever see Remember the Time in higher quality than we've got it now, which is a shame. Well, there's also a strange
0: look about it. It's almost like it's a Vaseline on the lens type job. I don't know what – do you you know what I mean? There's like a strange glow about it. It's very soapy. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know what they've done or how they've achieved that, but it is a bit –
1: Dreamlike. Dreamlike almost. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And Paul Black describes a lot of nineties material like that. He was talking about a lot of Michael's nineties work having that kind of effect. But it certainly feels like I remember the time. It's it's extra soapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Also since Christmas, another major thing that's happened is a brand new Michael Jackson interview has been unearthed. One we'd never heard before. It's allegedly a recording that happened in 1988 in preparation for the writing and release of Michael Jackson's autobiography, Moonwalk. It's come out on a a YouTube channel called Celebrity Classified. And I see that there is some dispute about the recording being done in 1988. Some fans are claiming it's a bit earlier in 1984. It's an interesting listen. I mean, Michael's talking a lot about his passion for giving wounded children fulfillment his passion for film and directing and different movies and directors I'm pretty sure at one point he talks about Francis Ford Coppola's cocaine addiction which is interesting hearing him discuss that his creative process as well one well I don't know what you found interesting in it but one part for me that was fascinating was at the end where Michael was saying how unsatisfied he is with Billy Jean as a live performance in terms of the lighting and the steps and how upset he is at the way it is and how much more he wants to do with it in the future.
0: I actually was left with the impression that it was recorded around 1984. As you listen to both parts, he refers to the tour repeatedly as our tour.
1: And then
0: the interviewer asks him a question specifically about the victory tour. And then he starts sort of criticizing his brothers a bit and saying, um, Words to the effect of, they don't come up with any ideas. They leave everything up to me. And they didn't support me in putting the show together. And that's part of the reason why he's unhappy with it. When he's talking about the album project, he, he starts talking about Victory and how happy he is that he didn't do any of the songs on it because he's already overexposed after Thriller. The story that's attached to this recording, although its its origins are a bit murky, but the story that seems to be attached to it is that this is a, an interview that Michael did with the first person who was supposed to write his memoir mm-hmm. for him, the first ghost writer, and then he changed his mind and they brought somebody else in and started again. So it does sound to me like a mid-'80s recording. So yeah, and I mean, I did always think that the Billie Jean performances on Victory, while I like the Victory tour, and it's certainly preferable to anything post-bad, there were elements of the show that never quite worked for me, and one of them was the arrangement on Billie Jean, the band's arrangement. I mean, the bass on it just
1: sounded like somebody twanging an elastic band, and (laughs) um and the songs, are, they're very fast, aren't they? I, I don't like how fast, to, how sped up they are, to be honest, on Victory. The dance sequence at the end, you know, whatever you want to call it, the
0: spotlight dance or the breakdown, obviously did evolve significantly by the time of the Bad Tour. The moonwalk was substantially improved. The repertoire of steps that he performed in the breakdowns was... Um, expanded so that's probably what he's talking about there and when he says that he's not happy with the lighting as well because of course what you get on the subsequent tours is basically a complete blackout with michael illuminated by that one spotlight which didn't really come to pass on the victory tour
1: Mm. yeah it certainly became a lot more theatrical
0: one thing that did jump out to me about the interview i've listened to both parts which adds up to about 20 minutes or something and it really, I feel so sorry for the guy that's interviewing Michael, because it is kind of like getting blood from a stone. <laughs> he's, yes. just, he's asking him questions, and Michael's like, uh, kind of, you know, I mean? or, uh, yeah, maybe. It, it's just like, oh my god, I would be mortified if I'd been sent to do that interview, and the person was respond." And I have had that in the past, people that you interview them and they just give you sort of monosyllabic answers. I just feel really sorry for whoever the guy is. I don't know why he got fired. Maybe he quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> yeah. You expect me to write a book based on this.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of a little Motowny y style in- <laughs> responses from Michael. He's, he's being a little bit vague. What do you think about the section at the start where Michael's talking about emotionally healing wounded children. I found I found that fascinating, how articulate he is around his views on children, even as early as that, at, at that point. Because when we think about Michael, you know, wanting to help children and Neverland and all of that stuff, we're often thinking 90s and 2000s. But if this was 1984, he obviously had a, a, a very deep understanding of his own psyche even at that point.
0: Yeah, there is even – there's an interview – Oh, now I'm trying to remember who it's with. Is it Melody Maker? There is an interview either before Thriller or very, very shortly after Thriller came out where Michael even talks about how he lets off steam by hanging out with kids and forgetting about everything else that's happening in the world. I mean, it's interesting that he says in this interview, which sounds like it's recorded in 84, because also it sounds like the guy that's interviewing him, it sounds like he's been on the tour. When he's talking about how he doesn't like Billy Jean, the guy says to him, Well, what what do you think when people like me tell you that Billy Jean on this tour is the best thing we've ever seen in our lives? So it sounds like he's been on the tour. Well, Why was I right. say anyway, so let's say this is 84. Michael actually says in this interview, I have helped many children words to that effect. He says, there's so many children who don't get what they need from their parents and they get it from me. And I read to them and I, he starts talking about this sort of ongoing, almost like a program that he's running for healing kids or something. So I don't, I was not aware of that being a huge part of his life around there. And I knew that he hung out with Johnny Spence because there's pictures of him hanging out with Johnny Spence and Targe. But um,
1: and the Casio the, kids probably around this point. Do you think? Well, maybe I don't know. That. I
0: don't know when he met the Casio kids. I assumed it was on the Bad tour for some reason, but I don't know why I assumed that because I don't know where the hotel was that he met them in
1: Mm, because they didn't meet them when, because their dad ran a hotel or something. Yeah. His dad ran, their dad ran a hotel, like the, I think it was called the Helmsley Palace or something in New York. And Michael was staying there and met the dad. And then the dad introduced Michael back to the family in their home in, in New Jersey. So I think it was probably thriller era that that was going on, but I could be wrong.
0: Well, but then you have to assume he's not talking about the Cassios because otherwise he's basically saying that they had shit parents. So, I mean, I don't know who he's talking about. I wasn't aware of that being um, something that he was doing that early on. Maybe we'll find out some more as more of the tape comes out. I mean, part two contains a promise of a part three to come. Who knows how many parts there's going to be. So I'll be intrigued to
1: listen to the rest as they come out. Yeah, definitely. Do you wonder sometimes when these things are coming out so many years after the fact I mean, especially being 2024, to what extent these things might be AI generated? I hadn't considered that until you just said it.
0: I don't think that this could be AI generated. I just don't. I think you, at this stage, you can still tell, even with deep fakes, I think that generally you can tell still at this point we might soon be at a point where you can't tell but I don't think we're there yet
1: yeah and and even like whether it even if it's not the whole thing that's ai generated maybe it is authentic but there's a part in it that's not i don't know it's difficult it's going to be difficult i think moving forward to definitively say whether something is completely authentic all of it
0: yeah it's very frightening, actually. I I am sort of of the opinion that AI should just be completely criminalized. The whole thing should be shut down and banned because you're right, Is we are going to get to a point very soon where you will not be able to tell where whether something is real or not. And that is just such a dangerous position to be in.
1: Especially for people in your line of work who are like your job essentially is around Eliciting and uncovering the truth. So, not being able to discern fact from fiction is going to make, well, your job simultaneously a lot more difficult, but also even more important.
0: Well, that's true, but it's not really about journalists. It's about the readers. You know, it's about democracy. It's about mm. how do you vote confidently in an election when you cannot tell what's real and what's fake? Do you know what I mean? it's It's a threat to the very Existence of the society that we live in. It could be used to topple governments. It could be used to turn populations against their governments based on nothing, based on fabrications. It's this—the potential for misuse of it is just gigantic. We've already seen it in the UK. I mean, it was a very crude attempt, but there was a fake recording of—I think it—I forget who it was. Now there was a Labour politician. Was it Sadiq Khan? I think it was Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. Somebody leaked what turned out to be a fake recording of him making a number of incendiary statements. As it turned out, it was... At the moment, you can still tell. You could tell that it was fake. There was something robotic about it. But give it another two years and you wouldn't be able to tell. And that is very frightening. Especially as it coincides with quite a lot of people... Largely very stupid people who say, I, I don't believe anything I read in the press. I do my own research on YouTube and that sort of thing. So people are already turning away from the places that will be able to tell them whether something's real or not and turning towards the places that are going to actively promote and peddle the fakes. So it's really frightening.
1: Yeah, I agree. And Turning back a little bit to Michael Land, there are still things coming out that we had never heard before or seen before. Like we talked about photos earlier on. Uh, Michael Jackson unreleased song um, was just auctioned recently. I think moving forward, even questioning whether songs are completely authentic or not is going to be really interesting. Haven't we been questioning that since 2010? We have, we have, although (laughs) imagine if AI technology existed for Eddie and (laughs) Jason. Um, (laughs) I mean, this particular song that's just been auctioned, it's called Seven Digits, and it is a Brian Loren track. The auction took place on February 7th. I don't know the outcome of the auction. I haven't seen any information or articles regarding how the auction went. All I know is that it took place on February the 7th. One thing that's interesting about this auction is Is that they decided to actually put a clip of the song itself on Instagram? I had never heard this song before. I'd I'd heard about it, and when we interviewed Brian Loren, he certainly talked about there being other songs that he had done with Michael that we hadn't heard before. turns out that's true. So Seven Digits, we now know generally what it sounds like. So you can hear a 10-second or so clip of it on Instagram. I'm sure many of our listeners already have. If you haven't, it'll be in the show notes. To me, it sounds a lot like Superfly Sister, which is not one of my favourite Michael songs at all. The auction included also something else that would be of strong interest to fans, I think, which is not only the song itself, but one hour and 15 minutes of audio of Michael in the studio. I don't know whether it's audio of him recording this particular track or just doing vocal warm-ups or what it is, but it would be interesting to hear that as well, I'm sure. This is very obviously a Brian Loren auction because the other items that were for sale as a part of the auction were given to Brian by michael so for example a fedora and a plaque or some kind of award plaque or something from the history era we haven't really heard from brian around the auction or as i said how it went but we now at least know that seven digits is out there in somebody's hands it's interesting so you said it sounds like superfly
0: sister and by the way i like superfly sister uh It does. I think that uh, in terms of the composition, it does. But I thought that the melody of the verses reminded me quite strongly of privacy. And I'm sure I remember that when Brian Loren came on the MJ cast, didn't he claim that he had heard something that Michael had released later in his career and he felt that it had basically been ripped off from one of the songs that he and Michael had worked on. He said that Michael had taken something from it and used it. And he seemed a bit pissed off about it. And to oh, me.
1: Not, not just one that? song. Yeah. I remember yeah. that clearly. I mean, I'll, that, that was an interview I'll never forget. Um, but he, <laughs> yeah. he um, was saying that it wasn't just one song. He was saying that from the dangerous era onwards, Michael took aspects of all the work they did and turned them into other songs on all the albums, history and Invincible. And I was shocked by that because I could have maybe understood history, but something that was a decade later or more after their recording sessions, you know, finding its way onto the Invincible album and then Brian not being credited, I was like, wow, really? That's maybe a bit of a stretch. I think he might have even named Privacy or one of the songs on Invincible. And uh, obviously at that point, we didn't have any proof that that was going on. But you know what? Unfortunately, as Michael Jackson fans, we do have to be honest, that is consistent behavior for Michael to take work and repurpose it and not credit the um, original creator of that work. We saw that happen with Brad Boxer and Stranger in Moscow, famously.
0: Well, yes. And when we when we interviewed, I wasn't on the Lorraine interview, although I listened to it afterwards, of course, and the, you're right, it was very interesting. But when we spoke to Forger, Matt Forger, I'm sure he told us that he had noticed Michael doing it so uh, sort of subconsciously, you know, that he would just, something similar to something they'd done before would just start to emerge in something he was working on, which is, there's not necessarily any ill intent or dishonest intention behind it. It could just be a completely subconscious thing. But yeah, to me, melodically, it sounds, it, in terms of the, the melody on the uh, the verses, it sounds like privacy. I don't know how much it sold for, but I think whoever bought it got ripped off because it's not really, as, as ever, it's not really finished. It's not really releasable or commercially viable or particularly good it doesn't even sound like a finished song so i don't know what they think they're going to do with this recording or how much they think it was worth i'm, I'm sure somebody was drippy enough to buy it but <laughs> um yeah maybe probably the work tape maybe the hour-long work tape whatever it is is probably more interesting than uh than the song itself
1: yeah yeah i, I mean i love hearing and watching things around Michael in the studio, particularly in the dangerous and history eras, I think, because that's when Michael was experimenting with completely new modern sounds with New Jack Swing and, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and the, the stuff they were doing for Michael. And I love watching his reactions in the studio to that kind of music. I would love to hear that tape. Another auction that happened that we forgot to talk about in the Christmas episode, but this one took place November to December. Another auction that we kind of forgot to talk about in late 2023 in our Christmas episode was one that took place, I think, between November and December or somewhere around there. And in this particular auction, I Gotta Have Rock and Roll had lots and lots of songs that were being auctioned. And I've never heard of many of them. There's something like nearly 20 songs, or maybe even a little bit more. And these are from the history sessions in New York City at the Hit Factory. And there's so many titles here I have never ever heard of before, like DNA, Lost in Love, Best Is Yet, Sexy Love. All like I've never heard of these songs before. There is one in there called Starlight, which you know, obviously, famously became Thriller. So I don't know whether that's the same Starlight or a different one. There's one called Diana Ross. There's one called New Jelly. Uh, I've never heard any of these or heard of any of these, it wouldn't surprise me if they're sort of just grooves on a tape rather than Michael singing or anything like that. Do you have any thoughts on this?
0: I had heard some of the titles like DNA, but I don't know what any of the songs are really. I would love to be proved wrong, but my impression based on everything we know and everything we've heard since 2009 is that there is nothing of any interest in the vault. There's no great song sitting in the vault, unreleased, and there wasn't in 2009 and there isn't today. That is the, all of the available evidence is telling us that. So again, I don't know what kind of drip you would have to be to go to an auction and buy this, but what you're going to get is a load of, click track you know like a, a a really basic sort of casio keyboard sounding beat and then michael sort of going la 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 over the top and mumbling gibberish that's what you're going to get in most instances so try before you buy would be my, <laughs> my advice <laughs> demand <laughs> demand a listening session before you put a bid on because you're just going to get a bunch of crap i'm i'm convinced of it I'm just so not enthusiastic about the idea of whenever somebody sends me something and says, oh, look, this clip has been released of a song called Seven Digits. I was like, well, it's going to be shit, isn't it? And then I listened to it and it was. So, you know, I just I just don't care really. I just have no interest.
1: I don't know whether for me it's an age thing, but <laughs> I know 10 years ago whenever anything of Michael leaked ever I was just over the moon. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Maybe that was kind of because he had just passed and I was just lapping up anything at all. But now it's gotten to the point, and this is terrible, I, I feel bad even saying this, and I'll probably get hate mail for saying this, but I I don't even find it like appealing to go and listen to some of the tracks that just came out on Thriller 40 that we hadn't heard before. No. Like I think I, no. I listened to it once and – I'm just not that interested in going back and listening to them again. Because they're not very good. Yeah, I think I've come around to the point of view that Darren Hayes famously articulated some years ago, whereby don't reveal what's behind the curtain. Leave that there, because it just makes the stuff that Michael chose to release even better. The more that comes out, I do feel like it's... You know, I used to have the opinion, and I guess to some degree I still do, if you package it correctly, if it's a demo, if it's something unfinished, and you package it correctly with a box set, it can be really tasteful. But the more that comes out, it's just, did we need that? I don't know. I think part of the problem is that
0: once upon a time, a box set was something that you only encountered if you were a hardcore fan that went to the record store and paid 60, 70 pounds to buy it. But we've now moved to an age of streaming, although not me. I don't use any streaming still. I'm still an old man. But the problem is now when you put those demos out on a, quote, box set, they just go on Spotify. And the analogy that I've used, I'm sure, on the show before is The Simpsons, right? The Simpsons was arguably the greatest comedy show that had ever been made. And if it wasn't the greatest, it was in the top five. From season two to about season eight, it was just magnificent. Pretty much every episode was amazing. And then they kept making it even though it turned shit and they kept making it and kept making it and it got shitter and shitter and they're still making it today. And what was once the greatest episode for episode comedy of all time, one of the most consistently amazing shows, series after series after series where pretty much every episode was amazing. Now, the amazing episodes are outnumbered by about six to one. They've just released so many episodes and so many of them are just shit. That if you were to do a tombola and put all of the Simpsons episodes into a barrel and then pick one out, you would be far more likely to pick out a shit one than a good one. (laughs) So, and that's the problem with Releasing CAC on a box set because a box set is no longer a box set. Somebody goes out and buys the box set, like me, somebody who still actually goes out and buys things and thinks that things are worth paying for. But most people consume their music now through streaming. So, what you're doing when you release all this duff material. In a box set, which was once the per, you know once the domain of the the sort of the scholar, the only the people that were really really interested, is you are just diluting Michael Jackson's discography. If you look at the amount of material that's been put out since Michael died, right? So you've got the Michael album, you've got the Escape album, you've got all the stuff that came out on um, Bad twenty five, you've got that shitty This Is It demo, all the songs that came out on Thriller forty. I don't know if I'm missing anything, but those all together are probably what about four albums worth of material, and it's all shit. And so now you've got Michael, who as a living artist released seven, well, really six and a half, six and a half adult solo albums, and. Now he's died. You've got another four albums worth of shit that's been released. So now almost 50% of Michael's discography on the streaming services is shit that he didn't want released when he was alive because he knew it was shit. He said, that's not going out with my name on it. I don't want it out there. So you've diluted the discography now. You've ruined it. You've watered it down. You've done a Simpsons. So that's the problem with the box set analogy is that the box set doesn't exist anymore. Unless you really did say, if you want to hear all the shit, you're going to have to go out and buy a physical box set because it's not going on streaming. That will be the only way to avoid that effect.
1: Yeah. And what makes it even worse than that? When I go to the Michael Jackson page on Apple Music, for example, I'm just looking at it right now. Uh, when I scroll down to the albums bit, so you go past songs, you go past Essential Albums, and then you just look at his albums, the estate have made it such that the albums they released show up first. So you've got <sighs> Escape and the Michael album are like the main ones, and then you have to scroll past them to get to <laughs> Thriller, which is oh just God. insanity. That is ridiculous. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't use any kind of streaming. I don't have Spotify or anything. So I didn't actually know that. I didn't know that the the posthumous stuff is sort of being promoted ahead of the good stuff.
1: Oh, it's it's a mess. And not only that, but they, they don't even have stuff in the right sections. So the history album, to get to that, it's not even in the album section. You've got to go to compilations because it's got the best of CD at the start. So they think it's a compilation. <sighs> Okay. It, it It is a mess. But hang on a second. You don't use streaming. All right. No. Ta- take us into the reality of Charlie Thompson. How do you actually play music? Are you like, do you get the, the CD out and put it in a CD player or what do you, what do you do? Well, firstly, I almost never buy
0: music at all because everyone I like is dead. So it's very rare that anything gets released that I'm interested in. But every now and then something will happen for example there will be a prince sign of the times box set or there will be a james brown concert that was recorded and never released that somebody in japan releases as a 5000 limited edition type thing in which case i buy the cd and then when the cd arrives i put it into my desktop computer and rip it into iTunes and then I burn it or you know, whatever you want to call it, I put it onto my I think twelve-year-old iPod. I know I took wow. that I took that iPod to Cyprus and I haven't been to Cyprus for 13 years. So yeah, it's probably about 15 years old that iPod. So I actually I have a an iPod that I use and I, I love it because I travel to London all the time which means I'm underground on the tube system for prolonged periods of time, which if I was relying on any kind of internet signal, then that would be no good. And also it means I don't muller my data. My phone is nice and empty and my data is preserved. So I'm still used. But the day that iPod dies, I think I will be truly desolate. I will be absolutely desolate. I don't know what I'm going to do. You could I, probably I buy an
1: iPod on eBay. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I might be able to buy a secondhand one or something.
1: But yeah, that is that's what I do. There you go. There you go. That's interesting. <laughs> We're very different people. I remember <laughs> in 2007 when the iPhone was announced. I remember I couldn't I, I, I couldn't be more excited to have one device to to get my music on instead of carrying around an iPod and a phone. But there you go. You like it.
0: Yeah, I don't want it on my phone. I don't want music on my phone. I hate my phone anyway. It gets right on my nerves. I would sort of wish that we lived in a society that didn't have them or that had some kind of equivalent. I preferred the old days when you switched your computer on and MSN Messenger was there and you could just chat that way. I mean,
1: the phone is just—it's relentless. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, vintage stuff is really back in. There are kids that walk around the school that I teach at with cassette players. And oh, really? really old school looking headphones. Yeah, yeah, it's it's back. The, the vintage stuff is like cool again. Well, sure. I know vinyl has had a massive resurgence. Yes, you're right. You're right. Well, speaking of Sony Music and the estate and all of those things, another news report by Variety's Jem Aswad has talked about Sony buying a major stake in Michael's music catalog, and this is something we talked about last year for sure, and the implications of this if it were to happen. But it has happened by the looks. The transaction is reportedly around six hundred million dollars, so just over, you know, around or just you know around half of the the total value of Michael's catalog, which is one point two billion dollars. Interestingly, it didn't just include Michael's music either. It wasn't just the Majak stuff, but it also included publishing rights to some other music that Michael owned. So Sly and the Family Stone, Ray Charles, Curtis Mayfield and different artists. So one thing I'm a bit confused by is how this connects to the Sony ATV catalogue and which what, what we're talking about here or whether it's all just one big thing. But what we do know is that Sony have entered an agreement um, with the Michael Jackson estate and have purchased around half of Michael's catalogue. This is not something that they're unaccustomed to doing. This is something a lot of artists are doing at the moment. So Bruce Springsteen famously sold his catalogue to Sony Music for something like $600 million. So this is something that is quite common at the moment, as I think you pointed out in a previous episode, is obviously very lucratively beneficial to Michael's beneficiaries, no doubt, but also something where they don't relinquish complete control over the catalog, it's not like they sold a hundred percent of it. They still own a major stake. I don't think it's quite half actually, because I read somewhere else this morning that there's another group. I can't remember their name, but there's another group that owns around ten percent of uh, Michael's Publishing. So Sony owned fifty percent. This other group, Wave or something, I think they're called, own about ten percent, which uh, must leave the um, you know Michael's children or the you know the estate owning about forty percent or something like that.
0: There's no question that the beneficiaries, assuming the money goes to them, have done fabulously well out of this deal. I mean, 600 million on top of the billions that have already been earned in the 15 years since Michael
1: died, you know. And the Beatles catalog sale also. Let's yeah. Let's not forget that. That was a monstrous deal. I mean, the kids are not going to starve anytime soon. So
0: although i understand why some people think it's bad business sense because you're essentially you know you're giving away your future ongoing income but any sensible person given this amount of money would never run out of money i think the big issue really is the fact that it's Sony that they've sold it to which is an issue that we've discussed many many times over the 10 years of the MJ cast but it never stops being true Michael hated Sony he hated Sony he never wanted to work with them again we know that in the final years of his life he broke his headphones and he sent his bodyguard out to buy him a new pair of headphones They didn't know the history of him and Sony. they brought him back a pair of Sony headphones and he smashed them up and sent them out to buy another pair. We know that when he died, there was a handwritten note in his bedroom about what his plans were for his career. And he'd written down that he wanted to work with either Universal or Warner. Sony was not on his list of people that he wanted to work with. So the animosity between Michael and Sony was enormous and you could say, well, Michael is dead, and that was a long time ago, so what does it matter? But that's a slippery slope, because then you start say well, where where does that end? What other wishes of Michaels do you want to put on the bonfire? You know, if you're happy to sell Michael in death to the record label, the one record label he absolutely did not ever want anything to do with again for the rest of his life, then what other significant wishes of his are you prepared to say, oh, well, that doesn't matter either, and neither does that, and neither does that, do you know what I mean? So it's uh, a difficult one to justify, really. Any, well, they could have sold it to anyone, do you know what I mean? It would have had the same value to anyone, It's gonna is a massively profitable catalogue that will make a huge amount of money for whoever buys it. But you never hear about the estate liaising with anybody except for Sony. They seem to just choose to always deal with Sony, which is a bit of a poke in the eye, really, not only for Michael, but for the beneficiaries who it appears opposed the proposal. And also for everybody that was supporting him in his battle against Sony it's a poke in the eye to all the fans who spent their time and money traveling to London or New York to join the protests that he organized, who boycotted Sony because he asked them to. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's there's a lot of history here. Whether you think that selling the catalogue makes good business sense or bad business sense It's the decision to sell it to Sony, which is antagonistic, almost.
1: Yes, I agree. It's the Sony factor, and to me it's also the John Branker factor, where he is financially benefiting out of these deals. The thing is, we know from when Michael was alive, we know that he was terrified of this guy. He kept firing him over and over again, even as late as the mid-2000s when he fired John Branker and demanded that all documentation was returned and destroyed, including the will, which was obviously never done, supposing it's real. And one of the things Michael was afraid of was John Branker gaining so much influence and control over his world that he would eventually orchestrate a sale of the Beatles catalogue and other assets. And that's exactly what's happened in death. And, and that just feels gross to me. The Beatles catalogue is gone. Neverland is gone. And now my Jack is 50% gone. And the main person benefiting out of that outside the beneficiaries is somebody Michael, I think we can definitively say, would never have wanted to benefit from that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those issues, again, that is like... You can have an opinion on how successful the estate has been, and that can be a separate opinion. You know, you can say, okay, John Branca has run the estate and he has made a huge success of it. He's right, you know, they've earned whatever, I can't remember the amount of money, but billions of dollars since Michael died. But that is a separate issue from michael's wishes and how do you decide which of an artist's wishes are worth observing and which of an artist's wishes are not worth observing now somebody could say if michael felt that strongly about it then why didn't he leave an updated will of course there's speculation that he did but it's such a murky issue it comes back to me. It's sort of like a matter of principle. And if you're prepared to say, Oh, well, I, I okay, well just ignore that wish of my course. I don't care if you ignore that one. It's like, well, who gets to decide which one is ignored and which one is not. I tend to be of the view that an artist's wishes should be observed. And that's it. Do you know what I mean? If Michael said when he was alive, I don't want to work with this person again, I don't want to work with this company again, I don't want anything to do with this, I don't want these songs released, I have chosen not to release these songs, it just feels to me like that should be observed, it's just one of many, 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 many examples now since he died of... um, His wishes not being observed. And what you're also witnessing, I would suggest, is a changing fan community, which is increasingly not comprised of people that were around when he was making these wishes known and who like to involve themselves in discussions and think that they're very brainy and sort of behave in a very juvenile way and tell people that they're to shut up boomer and all that sort of shit. And, and they don't know what they're talking about. They weren't there when Michael was still on the bus with his bulletproof jacket on. They weren't there when he nearly died in Santa Maria 2005. Do you know what I mean? They don't, they have no Mm -hmm. idea of the history. They they're not invested. They weren't around his darkest moments and they don't remember the extent to which he was invested in these things and made it known that he was invested in these things and that's kind of what the estates promo guy i don't know what you would call it, like marketing guy jam paul there's that interview that he did where he said that to him the worst people in the world are an artist's existing fans because they already have everything or something like that. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said that his whole job is to create a new fan base that replaces the old one. The word, his To him, the old fans are like a cancer. He just wants rid of them. He wants nothing to do with them. They're his worst enemy. There's an interview out there on YouTube where he says that this is the guy that does all the estates online marketing and stuff. His name is Jeff Jampoll. I was out the other week with Samar Habib from um, the Michael Jackson Academia Project. We were out together at a mutual friend's birthday dinner and we were talking about this very issue and about the extent to which Michael's wishes have not been observed since he died. Mm -hmm. And he said that he has just lost his energy now to really fight, fight about it or argue about it because he feels outnumbered now the people that cared about it have given up and the fan base is it, it is quite heavily comprised now of sort of young people that don't know what they're talking about have they would they didn't live it they don't remember it and they have no they just don't care all they care about is i want another song i want another documentary that's all they give a shit about they don't care about they, re- they don't care about Michael. They don't care about Michael as a man because they weren't here when Michael the man was here. To them, Michael is somebody they've seen photos of. He's somebody whose voice they've heard on a song, but they have no attachment to him as a person and they have no emotional investment in his story or his history. Mm-hmm. And he said the fight has gone out of him and the fight has gone out of the wider fan community. In his opinion, I do tend to sort of agree really and it's difficult to keep up the fight when members of the family have given up and started working with the estate and that sort of thing as well it's a bit like well what am i doing then why am i waving the picket sign if if michael's son is
1: gonna show up and endorse this thing then why am i protesting against it Fans that were, like you and I, were fans in the 2000s. I mean, that's when Michael was deep within his struggle against Sony <laughs> and it was so so visceral to watch his struggle. I'm just going to read a part of a letter here from 2003. Maybe this is something you could even give a little bit more insight into because it's sort of, I believe, connected to the to the uh, mid-2000s trial. This is a letter from Michael Jackson himself. It's signed by Michael Jackson to John Branker, Ziffran that you know, John Branker's firm. Dear John, this is to confirm that I am terminating the services of you and your firm effective upon delivery of this letter. Further on, you are commanded to give Mr. Legrand, who I think was a, a lawyer that Michael engaged. David to, Legrand. Yeah, David Legrand, yeah, as a um I think Michael did his own independent investigation into John Branker and found that there was cause to believe he was embezzling funds or Michael's money. So it says you are commanded to give Mr. Legrand, Ms Brant and their associates, your full and unconditional cooperation. I have asked Mr. Legrand and Ms. Brand to obtain all of my files, records, documents, accounts for myself and all companies I own or control, which may be in your possession. You are to deliver the originals of all such documents to Mr. Legrand immediately. He will arrange copies to be returned to you. So what that portion shows is that Michael, at the very least, had a distrust of John Branker. Are you able to give a little bit more insight on what Michael was doing with David Legrand at that point and why he engaged him and how that connected in with the mid-2000s trial? So at the 2005
0: trial, it was testified to by David Legrand that Michael had terminated the services of John Branca and had hired David Legrand as his new attorney and one of the things that he had hired David LeGrand to do was to investigate almost like an audit process to try to get to the bottom of what was going on with his finances, because Michael, as those who were around at the time will remember, was sort of convinced that there was some kind of conspiracy going on. He thought that he was being stolen from and conspired against. So what David LeGrand testified to was that there was a preliminary investigation done, and that's referred to in the court transcripts as the Interfor Report, and that the Interfor Report raised concerns and questions around the activities of people like Dieter Weisner, Ronald Conitzer, and John Brankett. However, once the preliminary investigation was completed, nothing else ever happened. So there was supposed to be an actual investigation which followed up on the sort of suspicions, the concerns that had been raised, and that investigation took place. So no evidence was ever uncovered of John Branker embezzling funds. What was testified to at trial was that there had been a preliminary investigation where concerns had been raised. But certainly no evidence was produced to say that it had actually happened. I know that John Brank has given interviews in the past where he has specifically addressed this and has specifically refuted it and said that he was not embezzling any money and that this was all rubbish. So we probably should mention that. It's very murky also whether um, John Branker had come back at the very end of Michael's life because he was involved in email chains concerning This Is It. He was part of an email group involving Randy Phillips and others discussing issues to do with the, the This Is It concerts. So it appears that he was involved in some capacity, but it's unclear whether Michael had consented to that or had knowledge of it. I don't
1: believe there's any letter that says I'm rehiring you or anything like that. So what's the main source that we have that's created the narrative that Michael hired John Branker again a couple of weeks before he died and was back as his, one of his main lawyers?
0: From memory, I think it was Randy Phillips who revealed it. And also in the wrongful death suit that Catherine Jackson and the children brought against AEG, emails were disclosed as evidence, and John Branca was involved in the email chains. Right. So there is evidence that he was involved in the the sort of the behind the scenes organization of the this is it concerts in the final weeks before Michael died, but it's unclear at what point he became involved or in what capacity. As I say, there's no letter from Michael that says you are rehired or anything like that. And there was, of course, there was a lawsuit that was filed by Raymond Bain, Michael's former manager, where she said that she was entitled to some of the money from This Is It because the deal was sort of her idea and it was initially negotiated under her management. And Michael pulled out at that time, but then revived the deal a later date. Somebody, I can't remember whether it was Raymond Bain or somebody else, submitted a sworn statement that said that sometime around 2008, they were in a meeting with Michael and somebody mentioned John Branca's name. And at the mention of John Branca's name, Michael erupted into hysterical shrieking He just started screaming. So that would indicate that as of that time, which was circa 2007 slash eight, he still was not president of the John Branca fan club. But what happened in the interim? Who knows? I mean, he did bring back Frank DeLeo. So is it beyond the realms of possibility that he might have been persuaded that bringing back John Branca was also a good idea? And in fact, might have been a good idea. I mean, certainly since he severed his relationships with those people, everything had gone tits up. So they are the go-to people in the business for a reason. And maybe he did decide to bring them back, even if it was a sort of a grin and bear it type situation. That is very much a possibility, but it's all a bit murky.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in addition to the issues surrounding Sony Music and then John Branker, we've also had more revelations recently around this court case that's sort of going on. It's not. Would you even call it a court case? In the estate versus Catherine Jackson situation. So she's given a bit more detail recently about how she didn't want or she wouldn't have wanted this sale to take place.
0: It comes from a story by Radar Online. And Radar Online says that it has obtained a 46 or 48-page court document which sheds more light on Catherine jackson's objections to the sale of the my catalogue however they have not published those court documents so all we have at the moment is radar online's story about the court documents it doesn't give a huge amount of detail but what it does reveal according to radar online is that it was not only Catherine Jackson, Michael's mother, who was opposing the MyJack sale. It was also his daughter, Paris, and his son, B.G. Whereas Prince, his other son, his oldest son, had been neutral, had said that he would defer to the probate court's decision. So three of the four beneficiaries, because 20% of the estate per the will that was produced goes to charities but those charities are not named so although money goes to charity there is no named beneficiary so there are four named beneficiaries which is michael's mom and his three kids and three of those four named beneficiaries were objecting to the MyJack sale however the reasons for their objections remain undisclosed, even in these court documents that Radar has obtained. So they were set out in previous court documents, which were redacted. And the reason they were redacted was because Catherine Jackson had said that they had contained sensitive information about the family, which might generate press coverage if it was disclosed. We now know that three of the four beneficiaries were opposing the sale, We also know that there was a quite a technical legal dispute about whether the estate had the right to sell the catalogue in the first place, but the court decided that it did. The court decided that the estate executors had the authority, had the right to sell the catalogue, even if the beneficiaries opposed it. And that is what has happened. But according to Radar Online, Catherine's appeal remains live. The case has not been closed. There is no record of any deal having been reached between the two sides. As far as anyone can tell, the catalogue has been sold despite Catherine's case still being pending, which is somewhat peculiar. It might suggest that the case has been resolved outside of court and the court system has not caught up yet. That's the only explanation I can think of, really, apart from that the executives have just decided that they don't care what the court says and they're just going to sell it anyway. But I just don't think they could legally do that. So it sounds like there might have been some resolution whereby Catherine, Paris and BG backed down or some agreement was reached, which we don't yet know
1: about. I just find this really disturbing, personally and maybe that's coming from a position of not understanding all the technicalities behind the case but if you've got 3 of the 4 beneficiaries not wanting it sold and one of those is Michael's own mother the person that Michael wanted his money left to and they don't want this to happen i just it just it just disturbs me that the executors would move ahead and do this regardless but anyway
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to a matter of principle. It's like I freely admit I do not know whether this is a good decision or a bad decision. I'm perfectly happy to admit that. I do not know whether this is a a good business decision or a bad business decision. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a business person. I just don't know. I'm sure that you could argue it either way. I'm sure that somebody could make a very compelling argument that it's a bad idea, and somebody else could make a very compelling argument that it's a good idea. So I do not profess to have the answer to that question. But as a matter of principle, if the people that you are supposed to represent don't want you to do it, unless it's life or death, or unless it's like, if we don't do this, the estate is going to collapse and you'll have nothing. I just don't really see what the impetus is, what the justification is for riding roughshod over the beneficiary's wishes, because the executor's job is to act in the best interests of the beneficiaries. And if the current situation is that the beneficiaries are already going to be looked after for the rest of their lives because the estate has made so much money, then how is it in the best interest of the beneficiaries to ignore and overrule them i just don't understand how that can be the case but maybe as i say there might be a great reason that none of us know about but what could it be i don't know i just don't know as a matter of principle it feels wrong it feels wrong to continually defy the people who you are paid to work for essentially, because the executors work for the beneficiaries. The executors' job is to run the estate. The people that own the estate are the beneficiaries. They are the people that own all of the income. It's it's their money, and the executors are effectively just looking after it for them. So to, to keep ignoring them and defying them and overruling them is just very difficult to understand.
1: Yeah, and I think Catherine Jackson articulated that herself. I think to Larry King at one point when she was interviewed, she said, we the I'm the estate. They're just the lawyers."
0: Yes, that's very true.
1: Yeah, so the beneficiaries
0: of the estate are are Catherine and the kids, and uh, some charities, some sort of un, unspecified charities. Effectively, the estate is owned by the beneficiaries. The will says that the money should go to them in the form of a trust and the executor's job is to steward the estate in the way that best serves the interests of the beneficiaries so Mm -hmm. it is to resolve all lawsuits pay off all debts and make as much money as it can so the dispute i suppose is over is it and this is the question to which i don't know the answer is it better financially for the beneficiaries to retain ownership of the catalogue and keep earning royalties on it in perpetuity? Or does it make better financial sense to forfeit a portion of those royalties in perpetuity for a giant upfront cash sum? I do not, profess to know the answer to that question but what it appears to me is that given the amount of money that the estate has made over the years it's difficult to imagine that without doing this deal the beneficiaries would in any way be financially vulnerable or in in any kind of you know money trouble now one thing and again this is pure speculation on my part but Wade Robson and James Safechuck have made allegations, as we know, and have filed at this stage many, many lawsuits trying to extract money posthumously from Michael's estate and then from some of the companies that he ran when he was alive and which still exist today. And that case is going to be going to trial now because the Supreme Court has sided with the appeal court which overturned the trial court which is a bit convoluted but so i do wonder whether this is a way of extracting money from the entities which are being sued and giving that money to the beneficiaries now because if they lose that lawsuit which is possible because the burden of proof in a civil court is a coin toss, then does it protect that 50% that's already been sold? So the money is now belongs to the beneficiaries, not to the company. Is there a possibility, for example, that if they didn't do that and then they lost this lawsuit, then the court could order the sale of the catalog to pay Wade and Jimmy. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yes.
0: So it could be, and this is, and I stress, this is pure speculation on my part. It could be a way of extracting money now in case something goes wrong in that court case. But I don't know that to be the case. And I may be completely wrong. And on that subject, that actually brings us neatly to what was going to be our next discussion topic. We reported late last year that Thomas Mesereau of the 2005 criminal defense team had joined the case and that Jennifer Keller, who is an old friend of Thomas Mesereau and who successfully defended the um, Kevin Spacey civil suit had joined the respondent team. We now know that also joining the defense slash respondent legal team is Susan Yu. Now, Tom Mezzaro and Susan Yu, are, they haven't worked together for a few years, actually. They used to run a legal practice together. They worked together on the Robert Blake case, and then they worked together on the Michael Jackson case. And Susan Yu is certainly in the Michael Jackson case. I don't believe she ever led any examination of any witness. I don't believe she stood up in court and questioned a single witness. But Susan Yu is the document person. She knows the case upside down and back to front. She is all across the evidence and the paperwork. That was her Role and her other role was in the Jackson case was managing Michael. Actually, she became a huge confidant to Michael and um, very much looked after him during the trial. So, getting the Jackson two thousand and five criminal trial defense team back together is going to be very interesting. I mean, as I say and I always say, because I don't want to give fans false hope, the burden of proof in a civil court is extraordinarily low. In a criminal court, you must prove the person did the thing beyond any reasonable doubt. In a civil court, the burden of proof is referred to as either the balance of probabilities or more likely than not. They mean the same thing. And in practice, what they mean is that if the juror is 50.01% sure, then they find that the person did the thing that they're accused of. So it literally, the burden of proof is akin to a coin toss. It doesn't mean to say that in every case that succeeds, it only succeeded because the proof was 50.1%. In many civil cases, there will be proof to 100%. But when you lose a civil case, it can be because the evidence was as low as 50.1%. The jury just about thought it was more likely that the person did the thing than that they didn't do the thing so it's a very dangerous situation for the jackson defense to be in the burden of proof is trash it shouldn't be allowed it's outrageous that such a burden of proof is allowed to exist and it exists in the uk as well as the us it's not a position that anybody should ever want to find themselves in but it is what it is i don't know what your response is to those things.
1: I don't have much to add at all. I think you've done a brilliant job in just covering that and explaining what's going on. My initial and only response is that I think it's hopeful. I mean, she, as you said, understands Michael. She spent a lot of time with him on a personal level, as well as understanding the ins and outs of the mid-2000s trial, which Wade defended Michael in. So, she is, I think, very well placed to be on the team. She's, a, from what I understand, a, a very experienced and exceptional lawyer. So I think bringing the old gang back, I mean, that's good, right? Like that that gives me hope. I mean, what better team could there be than Tom Mesereau and Susan Yu? These are people that understand Michael and understand the accusations against him and the potential motives that the accusers may have. So I'm given hope by this. So, you're feeling hopeful
0: about the civil lawsuit that's pending. How hopeful are you feeling about the biopic
1: now that information has started to trickle out? Well, I'm feeling better about it than I was last year, I think, because last year I had a position on it that was, this is not for me. (laughs) And I still have that position, I think. It's not really for me. It's for people that don't really know the ins and outs of Michael's career. It's for casual moviegoers. It'll really serve the great purpose of hopefully correcting the narrative in the public mindshare around Michael himself, but also getting people excited for Michael's music. Again, good things can come from that, for sure. Because I'm such a you know hardcore Michael Jackson fan and have been for a long time, and also a history buff. Like I am a history teacher. So I'm I'm a fan of real history, actual actual history, like footage of the person that I that I admire. So I would much rather watch a documentary about Michael than than watch somebody acting as Michael because I could just watch the real thing. You know, I'm a fan of Michael Jackson. I'll listen to Michael Jackson music or watch him perform. I'd rather watch that. So it's probably not for me. I'm not I'm not going to, you know, become a Michael biopic fanboy, <laughs> I probably will see it and I'm hoping that I'll be able to lose myself and and that Jafar and the, and the team putting this together will help me suspend my disbelief and for that couple of hours just enjoy the drama and the narrative and that kind of thing. But I'm going to pick out little bits of it. I'll be, you know, that costume's wrong. That's happening at the wrong time in Michael's life. You know, that acting wasn't so great. Oh, that doesn't look like Michael. You know, those things are going to happen. But the best I can hope for is that the public enjoy this and that it presents Michael in a positive in a positive and truthful light and get people excited for his music. That's That's what I'm hopeful for, not the film itself necessarily. So in the past week we have had an official release
0: of an image of Jafar mm-hmm. seemingly uh, portraying Michael on the dangerous tour. And we've also had leaked photos of Jafar in the thriller era mm-hmm. get up and the off the wall era getup. So what's been your reaction to the images that have been released?
1: He's better than flex Alexander. <laughs> Is he better than Navi? Yes. Um, I mean, he's, (laughs) he's, he's biologically related to Michael. He's got a similar build to Michael. I think that it's as good as we can hope for in terms of a portrayal of Michael. I mean, is the hair perfect in the dangerous era looking thing? No. You know, is the skin tone perfect in the thriller era stuff? No, but. It's as good as we can hope for in a biopic, I think. And what it's going to come down to for me is the actor's ability to make the audience suspend our disbelief. And Jafar Jackson is not an actor. So you can watch professional actors like Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan and you become completely lost in that performance because it's so masterful and so subtle and we just don't know what Jafar's going to be like. It could be, it, we just don't know. He might be naturally a great actor, but we just don't know. And there's a huge risk in this because Jafar is the star of the movie. And this movie, we, I mean, everybody wants it to go on to become as big as the Queen movie and, and all of that kind of thing. But if, if Jafar's not believable and the acting's wooden and we're sitting there going, oh, that's a bit cringy, then... It, there's risk associated with this but i think in general you know in general to answer your question i think he looks good he doesn't look exactly like michael of course cuz he's not michael but i think it's a it's a pretty good likeness especially for that 80s era your thoughts
0: yeah i think i the Officially released image, I was quite startled by how good the likeness was, although there were little bits of it that were not quite right. As Karen Faye said, the hair was a bit kind of um, thick and bushy. The nose was not quite right, but I don't really see any way of avoiding that. In the subsequent pictures, the leaked pictures, the resemblance has not been as strong. There's been speculation that it may be sort of edited post-production that they may be able they may be planning to do some kind of digital effects or something who knows yeah um i think the thing that i don't like is the fact that all these pictures are being leaked it might just be because i am you know the michael jackson guy but what happens is every time these pictures get leaked which has happened repeatedly this week about six different people text them to me. And so my phone is just buzzing all day at the moment, every day with people going, oh, look, new pictures from the biopic, new pictures from the biopic. And it's like, I am so sick of this biopic, and they've been (laughs) shooting it for about three days. I just, I don't want to hear anything about it now until it comes out. I'm fed up with it. I, I I don't really think it serves anybody for this stuff to keep It's almost like you've seen the film now. It's like, oh, so I know that they've shot the Jehovah's Witness door-knocking scene. Now I know they've shot the -the off-the-wall promo scene. I know that they've shot Tower Records is in there. Tower Records has been shot. We know that they've shot the mobbing Michael at the hotel scene. There was another thing that leaked. Now we know that they've shot Man in the Mirror from the Dangerous tour. So it's almost like we know the whole movie now. You know, if this keeps happening every day- there's going to be nothing in there that we're not expecting. There's going to be no surprises in there. So it seems detriment. I mean, I know you can't control the public and stop them taking pictures if you're shooting something in the street. And equally, you can't um, stop the paparazzi from shooting pictures in the street. That's their right, and so it should be. But I'm just finding it a bit aggravating, to be honest. So whereas previously I was just like, well, I'm not really interested in the biopic because I'm sure that it's going to be all wrong and it's going to aggravate me. It's now become I'm actually sick
1: of the biopic. (laughs) (laughs) I started out ambivalent and now I'm sick of it. This could serve us well, though. If we keep getting sick of it and we keep thinking it's not looking very good because maybe we're seeing non-professional photos being taken by somebody on their iPhone, it might lower our expectations massively, which is good. And then we'll go and see it and quite like it. I would love for it to be good. But
0: I see, I, you know, as you know, I'm a huge James Brown fan. When the James Brown biopic came out, I went to see it at the cinema. And the fact that I was so knowledgeable about James Brown kept snapping me out of the film. Because things were happening, i go, well, that didn't happen. That bit's not true. That's happened in the wrong year or whatever, you know. So being very knowledgeable about the subject is to the detriment of the viewer, I think. So I just don't see any way that people like you and me are going to come out of this biopic happy with it because it is inevitably going to contain a lot of stuff that's not true or
1: that's factually It's also going to probably end on a massive down note because a couple of months ago we were speculating because we, we had heard that the film finishes at Wembley and what we didn't know was whether that was Wembley bad or Wembley dangerous. We now know it's probably Wembley dangerous tour because the photo we've seen that's come out, the still shot, appears to be Michael in the dangerous era And we've also seen another photo on the set with Saida Garrett watching them film, I think, Man in the Mirror. So Mm -hmm. that tells me it's probably going to finish in the Dangerous era. This is when Michael was hanging out with Geordie Chandler. They're not going to show Michael's eventual vindication in the mid-2000s because the film's going to finish in 93. So to me, the film would have to finish on a down note because it'll probably conclude with the the Chandler family you know coming after Michael, Michael going into drug rehab and and that's that. Like if they're going to do a historical a, a truthful discussion of Michael's life up until that point, that was like one of if not the lowest points of his entire life was the dangerous era. We talked about this in in the Christmas episode, they can't cut that out. When the public think about Michael Jackson, unfortunately, they think about, the, the two things they think about usually are, yep, amazing entertainer, one of the best musicians of all time and performers, but also possibly a pedophile. That's what regular people on the street think. They cannot finish in the dangerous era and not discuss the Chandlers. Well, you say they cannot, but they can.
0: And well, the, they if they might. do
1: that, the public will reject this film.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly the critics will reject it. It will be in. It, I think the thing is, they probably know that even if they make the greatest film that's ever been made, the critics are going to slag it because it's Michael Jackson, and the press hates Michael Jackson. So even if it's an amazing film, even if it is the twenty-first century Citizen Kane, they're still <laughs> going to get shit reviews. That everyone's going to say, "Oh, it's, it's a." vainglorious it's um a whitewash whatever the critics they will have written they've probably already written the reviews now right and you saw it when michael released albums in the latter half of his career the review of the album would just be basically a list of reasons why they think he's weird and then oh by the way there are some songs on this album so Mm -hmm. maybe they just don't care if they get shit for that because they know that michael is so famous around the world that this film will make money regardless of what the reception is and maybe that's what they're banking on who knows but the wembley concert on the dangerous tour was 92 so if they're ending at wembley on the dangerous tour than it is actually before Michael even began hanging out with Jordan. He'd met him, but he hadn't started hanging out with him. So it could be that they are planning to end it. It seems to me to, again, it's sort of indicative of if that is the case, then it indicates that there's going to be some kind of phony narrative going on here. Because the idea that, michael's career was building towards playing wembley as just a nonsense wembley was one of many many stadiums that he played on these tours it wasn't a dream michael wasn't growing up in gary indiana saying my dream is to one day play in north london right that's that why would he be that doesn't make any sense so it's almost like they're just trying to copy the narrative of the queen biopic and shoehorn michael jackson into it right so I don't. I have no idea why the director would say we're following his journey from Gary Indiana to. He said Wimbledon, but we have to assume he meant Wembley. (laughs) What journey? That that is there. There is no such journey. Michael. (laughs) Michael was the Michael's goal in life was not to play Wembley Stadium. So that kind of sounds like some bullshit. If that is the direction they're going in, but the producer had said previously, and I think the director had said previously, that this film would go into all the allegations and all that stuff. They said it would cover everything, his trials and tribulations, the legal stuff, but who knows what's happening. Well, that's just not
1: possible unless they just make it so that the allegations happened in the bad era or, like, you know, that's probably something they might do. But the thing is, what do you learn in, in first grade at school about writing stories? Beginning, complication, resolution, right? That's yeah. There needs to be a problem in the middle of the film that Michael's dealing with somehow for this to be engaging for audience members. The problem for me here is that when you look at Michael's life in context his whole life, his great struggle was against the media who were portraying him as a monster when really those who research it know that he wasn't a monster at all. He was trying to help people. That was his great struggle and among other things like shady people around him trying to bring him down and all kinds of things. But his main issue was that he was accused of things he didn't do and had to deal with that for the second half of his life. Now, because of the timing, the, the time frame of this film and it finishing when he was in his 30s, before he was you know, accused of anything, if they finish it then, they're going to have to come up with another great struggle for Michael or a problem for him. And if it's not the allegations, you know sure as hell they're going to make it his family.
0: Well, that's very possible. That is very possible.
1: And if this film comes out with the major complication in the middle of the film being Michael versus the Jacksons, <laughs> I, I will be frustrated. But, but we do have Taj telling us late last year that, you know, he's seen the script and he's happy with it. So, and if there's anyone that's sensitive to, you know, anti-Jackson narrative, it's Taj. So I guess that's hopeful.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you think, would you put it past the MJ estate to take the film up to dangerous? And then if it's a success, go for a sequel Exactly so they can make what I think $2 they billion instead of
1: $1 billion. That's exactly what I think they should do. I don't know if they will because I don't know if there's a um, precedent for successful biopic sequels. <laughs> I don't think there is really. But uh, I think that's probably what they should do because they can sort of address, if they pretend like the allegations happened in the bad era or the early dangerous era, they could sort of shoehorn that back in there. They can already cover some of the other big, I guess, dramatic things in Michael's adult life, like the drug addiction and the plastic surgery and also his struggle with vitiligo. They can cover all of those things in the 80s. The one thing they can't cover is the allegations. So what they could do is make one film that, end, that, that sort of discusses or introduces the allegations at the end, and then if it's a raving success, they could have a second one which shows Michael in the second half of his career and then details his um, 90s and 2000s experience, struggle against Sony Music. Not that that's probably going to feature in the film, but I I think that's the direction they they should go in because you could create a standalone film that would be fine by itself, but if it's a raving success, they could then do a sequel that goes into more detail around the later half. The problem with that
0: is there is no happy ending. So that second film would be mighty depressing.
1: (laughs) Well, That would would be a
0: real clusterfuck of a story. It basically, it starts with a bunch of shit happening to him. And then for the next two and a half hours, people just sling shit at him for every direction. And
1: then he dies because someone kills him. But you could, you could script it such that things that weren't in reality such a great triumph could be presented as such. Like, And I'm, I know I'm uh, going and against I know you, said about- yeah, I know, and you're saying this as a history teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying this is something I think that should happen. Yeah. But what they could do is they could present the 30th anniversary concert reunion as a triumph with his brothers and they could present the This Is It deal and ticket sales and rehearsals as a triumph even and that's exactly what they have done already over the last 15 years we just would know what really happened you know I, I i think it's possible i i don't know i just think if they come out with this movie and there's no allegations in it or they just introduce the chandlers and then michael it finishes with michael going into drug rehab and Knowing that the world thinks he could be a paedophile, mm. that's like imagine ending the film like that. But if you don't end it like that, then it's not a truthful film. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a it's, difficult one. I don't. I don't envy the problem that they have to resolve. That's the thing. I, I fully accept that Michael's uh, that Michael's story is a very difficult one to tell in the space of a movie. And it's always going to be a massive issue. The the big issue is going to be what do we leave in and what do we leave out. It's, it just seems to me to be an unresolvable problem, really.
1: Well, we'll just keep watching it unfold. I'll make sure to continue texting you images of Jafar on the set, as many as possible oh, each you. day. That's That's okay. All right. We've watched a couple of other films recently, haven't we? So, last night, I believe you watched The Three Michaels. It was actually
0: this afternoon. It was last night for you. Last so night was, for me.
1: Yeah, it was this, Recently this afternoon for, you. for me. Yeah. So, this is a documentary directed by Tom Goodsmith, and was originally a Kickstarter project that we backed in 2018, or that I backed, and we, we sort of talked about it on the MJ cast at the time. And I remember that the Kickstarter wasn't going that well for nearly its entire duration and then right in the last sort of couple of days Taj Jackson came in and backed it and then I think publicly shared it then it got over the the finishing line which was good and I was very happy about at the time and it's since um, been released to Kickstarter backers. So if you backed this documentary, you would have got an email saying that the film is ready for you to watch with details on how you can watch it online. I don't know if anybody else can see it yet. I don't know if it's been shown at a film festival. I certainly couldn't find anywhere online that you can stream it. But we will continue to try to find a way to get information out to our audience about how to watch it. And for those of you who don't know what it's about, this is a film about three Michael Jackson impersonators who travel from San Francisco to Hollywood, hoping to become as successful as their idol. They quickly attract attention. Their hopes of achieving the American dream Seem pretty close at some points to to them, um, as these three guys who were called Malachi, Quinton, and Cheval, are accosted by a paparazzi. They hustle their way into agencies and meet, you know, famous musicians and different people. But before long, the the harsh reality of making it in in the industry kind of you know hits them front on. And it's a it's a it's an interesting documentary. Without giving away my thoughts yet I want to hear from you Charlie because I watched it about three weeks ago and a bit of time has passed since then but you watched it just a few hours ago so (laughs) hit us with your thoughts
0: well I'll start by just saying it's sort of like a road trip movie but it's a documentary and as Mm -hmm. you say it's about these three impersonators and their journey from San Francisco to Los Angeles to try to make their fortune however that sounds like a fun movie but it it's i my takeaway from it was i found it incredibly sad um Mm -hmm. and also i felt uncomfortable watching it and the reason i felt uncomfortable watching it was that these three guys are none of them were doing great in their lives to begin with and two of them i would say were somewhat deluded would be one way of putting it well one of them is um a a conspiracy theorist he believes that michael has faked his own death and that he knows who Michael is, and that Michael is now making his living as a Michael Jackson impersonator called Pablo. (laughs) And it is is clearly, in my opinion, mentally unwell. Debatable whether one of the other two also possibly has some kind of mentor condition or impediment or something i it's difficult i don't want to i don't want to attack the filmmaker because i don't know the filmmaker and i don't know what their intent was but to me the film felt exploitative it felt it put me in the same mindset as martin Bashir's film about michael when you watch uh, living with michael jackson And you can see that Michael is not in a good frame of mind in a lot of the film, and it's questionable whether he was capable of forming informed consent to being filmed, whether he really understood how bad what was happening in his life would look when it was filmed and released to the public. That's kind of the impression I got. I, I felt like these are three young men who have entered into this film project in the belief that they will come out of it looking good and it will be helpful to them when it is obvious to everybody, including the filmmaker, that this film is going to make them look bad. And this film... And when I say bad, I don't mean it's going to make them look bad in terms of like bad people, because they're not at all. They all come across as pretty nice people with good intentions. What I mean is the film invites ridicule. It invites ridicule of them. It follows them around as they are having these kind of deluded ideas of what they think they might be able to achieve. <sighs> Again, I, you know, the, these guys could listen to this podcast, right? So I feel really, I find it, I'm finding it very difficult to talk about this film because I feel that they've already been exploited, and I would hate the idea of, of them listening to this and being upset by something I've said about them because they all seem like nice people. But in my opinion, the film is somewhat exploitative of at least two people who are vulnerable. I'll put it like that. In my opinion, vulnerable is a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. My opinion would be that at least two of the three are vulnerable individuals who i would question whether they were capable of giving informed consent and i question whether it's difficult i question the filmmakers motives i'll just put it like that and i think that's a fair thing to say if you've seen the film It kind of like, there's no way that the filmmaker could not have known when he was making it that at least elements of the film were going to make these three people look ridiculous. And I think that is fine if you're punching up, but he's not punching up. He's punching down at vulnerable people and i i just felt desperately desperately sorry for them and i felt sorry for them that this film has been made and i felt sorry for them that this film is going to be seen and i kind of hope it isn't seen because if it is i think the impact on these three men could be devastating that would that would be my takeaway
1: okay so you have a you, you this this film obviously affected you a lot more than I thought it was going to. (laughs) When I watched it, I also had similar feelings. Not sure I felt at the time when I was first watching it that it was exploitative, but you've made me look at it in a bit of a different way for sure. When I first watched it, I was engrossed in it. I, I couldn't do anything else but watch it. I didn't pause it. I didn't have a drink break. I didn't do anything like that. I was just sucked into it for the entire runtime. And it's one of those documentaries I actually think it's a very good documentary. Even if it's exploitative, I feel like it achieves what a lot lot of documentaries don't, and it transports you into these lives and makes you feel very strong emotions. And I feel like that's the mark of an effective documentary for me, is if it can do that. And it transported me right there with them, and it made me feel what these guys were feeling. And... I think the director deserves, at least for that, recognition. Uh, I was absolutely engrossed in it. What I will say is it's technically also, I think, a very good documentary. It's beautifully shot. The director of photography is Tom O'Keefe. The sound editing is incredible. It, It is technically, it looks and feels like a really, really great documentary. In terms of what it's about, so... When I first saw the Kickstarter and was first watching the trailers and different things for it, I thought it was just going to be a fun look into what it's like to be a Michael Jackson impersonator and the sort of lengths these guys go to to create a show and celebrating Michael and his music in kind of a fun, lighthearted sort of way. It's not. It is not that. It is the, the entire time I watched it, I had, a, like you, a sense of sadness and also a deep sense of pity for these for these guys for very different reasons. So, there's three of them and they all have different roles. So, one of them is kind of like an older Michael Jackson impersonator that's been doing it for quite a while and he's like the leader of the group and he looks, looks after these two other guys. And there's like off the wall Michael, there's bad Michael, there's thriller Michael and... At one point, I think somebody in the film who's like semi-famous, like a music producer or something, describes them as like the Father Michael, the Son Michael, and the Holy Spirit Michael. That I thought was pretty funny. But um, these three guys—that they, that's their whole gig—is that they've got different eras of Michael. They're together. That they're, they're—I think they're—they're they're good dancers. Like they—they—they they know them all these moves and mannerisms, and they're, they're good at that sort of thing. The costumes look. Some of their costumes are better than others, but I think they look really great. And they're fun. They're just fun to watch. So in the scenes, there's a lot of scenes where they're performing as Michael on the street for, you know, members of the public and you see all their interactions and they're bringing a lot of hope and happiness to people. In those particular scenes, yes, I definitely felt joy and happiness for these guys because they love doing that. But that's only a portion of the film. That's only, like, sprinkled throughout it. Most of the film is their daily struggle with poverty, really, not being able to achieve what they want. They're very lonely men. They, I think two of them don't really have many friends at all. I think one of them doesn't have any friends. He says that he can't make connections with other people. They're getting ridiculed as well throughout it by different people. They're, And then there's this layer on top of it, which I think is just an incredible narrative device, which I was not expecting. But the film, yes, it's a road trip. It's detailing their trip to LA, but it's interspersed with these kind of like interruptions, almost like flashbacks, but they're not going back in time. They're like being interrupted by leaving Neverland coming out and the news about that coming out. And that sort of culminates later in the film with them watching it so they're hearing about it coming out just like we were when it was coming out. We heard it was going to be at Sundance and, you know, it's like that for them as well because this is going on at that time for them and then it culminates with them watching the film and commenting on it and what it means for them and what they're doing. I found it a sad watch as well and it left me for days feeling very sorry for these men because they're so disenfranchised. And it's hard to say because I'd hate for them to hear this as well, but yes, very, very deluded in their reality. I think it's an excellent case study into the psychology of somebody who wants to become an impersonator, why they might do it, somebody who's very vulnerable, lonely, and dismissed by society just devoting themselves to Michael Jackson as a way to cope with their reality. I think that's compelling, but it's a it's a difficult watch. It's a very raw and very real look into their reality. And I agree with you that when these guys were approached for it and filmed it, maybe didn't know. Maybe didn't know that was the point of it. I'm not sure. But it was a difficult watch. Heartbreaking, really. That is a word I would use,
0: heartbreaking. And the thing is that even within the film, you witness them being kind of abused in a way. So there's a there's a moment in the film, they've got to Los Angeles. They've basically, they're making no money. They're dancing on the street. They're making about $10 a day each. And they go to the Beverly Hills Hotel because mm-hmm. they know it's somewhere Michael stayed. And they're wandering around looking at the hotel They're just leaving and this guy comes chasing after them and he introduces himself as a Grammy winning record producer who has worked with Nicki Minaj, uh, Beyonce and some other people and he buys them lunch and it's such a heartwarming moment. It's the first time in the whole film that you've seen anybody treat these guys with any kind of humanity he takes them for lunch and says, you know, this is on me. Don't worry about it. It's a pleasure to meet you. And as they part ways, he says he's going to introduce them to uh, an artist called Wiz Khalifa. And so a couple of days later, they show up for their meeting with Wiz Khalifa, which this guy has organized. And when they get there, it's a bit like a pig party or something, you know what I mean? So, or it's like Carrie. It's a bit like the film Carrie where the, the handsome guy at the school invites her to prom and it's all a ruse. And when she gets there, they mm. cover her in pig's blood. It he, the guy has brought them there to take the piss out of them and him and all his friends and Wiz Khalifa get them in the studio and just take the piss out of them and then kick him out again. And in the car, these three guys have this realization, this moment of realization where they're like, he, he he, just brought us there to take the piss out of us. He just brought us there to ridicule us. And it's heartbreaking. It's really devastating because this guy earlier in the film seemed like the hero and he just turned out to be an absolute asshole. And, so the one moment of humanity in the film that's shown towards them later is actually it, it is taken away again. And so the whole film is basically depressing. There's not actually any moment in that, apart from at the very end, which I won't give away, but apart from at the very end, there is really no moment of respite from the just relentless misery of it and i found it a really difficult watch for that reason not uh, misery i mean in the sense that these poor guys it's just obvious from the beginning that they it's not going to work and but they absolutely believe that it is. And you're just – it's almost like watching a kamikaze mission. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And everywhere they go, people are taking the piss out of them. The TMZ guy is taking the piss. It's just – oh, it's horrible. It's just like watching people getting bullied for an hour and a half. That's That was how I felt about it.
1: There's some moments, though, that made – there there are some moments that – I thought were heartwarming. Like when they talk about giving hope and joy to people for just a minute on the street, giving them some escapism and hope and entertainment. Like I I felt like that level of human connection was hopeful and, and encouraging. But then you've got other parts where like when the older one figures out that, you know, one of the other guys or both of them, I can't remember whether it was the one whose dream is to become a porn star, whether it's him that's leaving or or Malachi but when he figures out that the group's kind of disintegrating and he's realized well they're moving on and I'm just I've just got to keep doing this like this there's, <laughs> there's some parts in it that are really you know
0: <laughs> heartbreaking
1: yeah. to watch oh it is it's devastating if it was
0: about if it if I didn't feel that two of the three in my opinion would be classified as vulnerable then i might have different feelings about it but my problem with it fundamentally mm. is that i feel like these guys were not in a position to understand what they were signing up for at the time that they signed up for it and that they yeah clearly believed that they were signing up for something different than they were. That's my problem with it. And I just feel like it is not in their best interests for this film to have been made. And if it were to be widely released, it would be bad for them. And I kind of feel bad for having seen it. And I feel even worse about the idea of lots
1: more people seeing it. I think it's a complicated movie, just like these guys are complicated i I don't think I can definitively say the point of the director was to exploit them I think a natural no, I'm not
0: saying that but i'm not i I cannot claim to know what the director's intent was, but what I do think is that it's it, no reasonable person could not have anticipated that sections of this film would. Expose them to ridicule. Do you see what I mean? He he, he would clear, have to though. be. It doesn't show he, these
1: guys doing horrible things.
0: No, no, it's no, not, no, no, no. I'm not saying. Like I'm not saying that they do anything bad in it. I'm saying that that they, they there are moments in it where they think. That is, it's a hard one to explain. There are moments in it where they think that they are embarking on ventures which are going to be beneficial to them, which everyone watching it can see are not good. Right? They've got delusions of grandeur. Yes. Delusion. Yes. That would be one way of putting it. Yeah. Which is a, which is a symptom of, of, of mental illness, by the way, which is why I kind of consider that they could be vulnerable, particularly when taken in tandem with other things. So for example, the guy that is convinced that Michael Jackson is alive and that he knows who he is, that's not, that's not indicative of somebody of sound mind. Uh, what I'm, so for example, there's a moment where they get stopped in the street by TMZ. This would be one of the examples of what I'm talking about. And the guy from TMZ who is taking the piss out of them, he, he is ridiculing them. He says, Oh, I'm going to film you doing a performance. Will you do a performance for my camera? Right. They do a performance for his camera, which no objective person could think was a good performance but they think it's a good performance. And so as the audience, we are all in on the joke, which is these guys have just made tits out of themselves, but they're not in on the joke. They think that they've done a great performance. So that's what I'm talking about. The the director Mm -hmm. of this film, as he's putting this film together, as he's sitting in the editing suite, he must know that that is embarrassing and that if that is broadcast to people, it's going to be embarrassing for them a bit like the old days of the X factor when the producers used to deliberately put shit people in front of the judges and then put those auditions on TV, exposing them to ridicule by millions of people. They think that they're great, but they're not. That could have been a private delusion but the producers of The X Factor have turned it into a public delusion for ridicule yeah. as entertainment. That's what I mean. So, so the director, I'm not saying his intent when he set out to make the film was to exploit them. But what I am saying is that at some point in the process, it must have occurred to him that this film that he's making is not good for these people.
1: Yeah. And what what makes that heartbreaking is with the X Factor stuff, you don't see the backstory of those people's lives. They're just characters that have turned up that want to do something that they think they're great at, but they're not. But with this one, this is interspersed with these guys just trying to cope with the like relentless societal pressure of, you know, finances. They don't have money. They are struggling day to day with the basic things. And it, it is heartbreaking to watch them struggle with life, but then also kind of fail at what they really want to do. So it is hard. It's a hard watch and it's um, you've got to be ready for it. You know, <laughs> it is depressing. We'll see. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it was made quite a number of years ago now, five or so years ago. When I finished watching the movie, the main thing I wanted to do was find out what these guys are up to now. It's been five years since this was made. So I'm just still right now insanely curious what happened to the three Michaels. Like, where are they? What are they doing? Have they got regular jobs? Are they still impersonating Michael Jackson? Are they, you know, are they alive? Mm. I'm curious where their life has gone since then because if it does succeed, if it is shown at film festivals, people will not be watching current people do you?
0: There's actually a moment where one of them says, "He's a, he says to the camera, one of two things will happen to me. I will either become successful in the entertainment industry, or I'll end up in the
1: news and dead." Do you remember that? That was extremely disturbing. Yeah, moment. yeah. I mean
0: it's a really difficult, difficult watch. And it's a very interesting, moral and ethical study in filmmaking. As you know, this the debate could go on for hours. I mean, I, I have real concerns about it personally.
1: So I think what we'll do is we probably won't directly provide a link for people to, to find it and, and download it. But what we will do is in the show notes link to the website for the production company. They've got a page about the film. You can't get the film through that page. I don't know if there's any possible way to get it other than if you were a Kickstarter backer, which we were at the time. Um anyway, I think it uh it it was a um it was a film that will stay with me for a long time. That's for sure. Let's shift gears and talk about another documentary That is much more, shall we say, palatable And has reached quite a number of people Because it's on Netflix And it's doing really well on Netflix at the moment This is a documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop Directed by Bao Nguyen And it tells the story of We Are the World Right from its inception all the way through To the recording and release of the song And music video as well and this one, I had a, a different reaction to altogether. So <laughs> I think I'll start off with this one and then, and then I want to hear your thoughts as well. So I really, really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it three and a half stars. I'll tell you what, I'll give it right off the bat rather than at the end. This is a three and a half star documentary to me out of five. It's almost perfect. It's, it's, it's like, for me, watching a sprinter that are sprinted to the finish line and tripped over two metres from the end and then somebody else wins the race. (laughs) Like, to me, it is almost perfect. It's much better than any other documentary I think the estate has released because the problem that a lot of other documentaries about Michael make is that they try to deal with a very broad topic that there's lots of information about and compress it down into 90 minutes. And that's a really hard thing to do what this one has done is taken one song one night one event and then made a documentary around that investigating the origins of it the characters around it the people who are performing in it all of that kind of thing and it allows there to be a lot of time to explore all of that and of course there was so much footage shot on the night of course of we are the world uh the recording of that song after the american music awards there are amazing things about it so right from discussing the origins of the song they get the broad strokes of the narrative right they present michael's intent lionel's intent ken Cragen's intent all of these different people quincy's intent correctly it's it's really gripping i think in terms of the challenges that were faced putting it together with lionel having to juggle hosting this huge event but then going to the studio straight after that to record this the logistics of making it happen the problems with the, the technical side of recording it i think all of that is really gripping and you know i was i was really glued to this one as well uh but I do have a problem with it, and I can't shake this problem. Like I, I finished watching it frustrated, not because it's bad. It's not bad. It's definitely good, and I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of people watch it and enjoy it, and again learn about you know the the great artistry behind this song. But the two problems I have with it is that, well, three problems. One of them is minor. The first problem that's minor is that all the footage that's not talking heads is really really low quality and lower quality i think than it should be because these events were professionally shot sure they wouldn't have been shot on film they would have been shot on tape like the american music awards and the we are the world sessions but for whatever reason like i mean i was watching it on a hd tv it wasn't even 4k but the quality of all that contemporaneous footage seemed like vhs quality to me it did not look great blown up you know on a large TV. Uh, So I was confused by that because there was a big mismatch between the talking heads and then the actual footage from the time. That was weird because I'm certain that footage is available in better quality. We've seen it in better quality in other places. That was the first thing. But the major ones for me, that's minor. The major ones are there's key sources of information that would have made the telling of this story so much better that are just not in there at all. There is a half an hour section to begin the movie all about the conception and creation of this song, and they rely on people's recollections of, of what happened rather than going to direct information from the time. Michael Jackson gave a deposition in 1993 when he was sued and Quincy and Lionel were sued for this song. People were alleging that it was a plagiarized fraudulent song and they ended up winning the case. But in that deposition, Michael spends 10 minutes exhaustively discussing the writing and creation process of the song. What did Lionel bring to him? What did he add to it? How did he create it? Who are the people he worked with to do it? It is so detailed and it would have been perfect at the start of the film. And it's like they missed this absolute gold nugget that was just there, ready to be put in to explain it all. Instead, you've got these very broad statements about who did what that doesn't detail it at all. And because that depth isn't in there, you get a lot of other people being missed who actually worked on it. And there was a video that was put up on Instagram recently by a drummer John Robinson. And he discusses all the people that were missed out. So you've got Greg Phelan Gaines, Lewis Johnson, John Barnes, David Page, Michael Boddicker, Ian Underwood, Steve Paulinho de Costa, Quincy's Rhythm Section, John Robinson himself, and Michael Amartian. These people are the people who created the song with Michael Jackson in the studio prior to it being recorded by everybody else. John Barnes, in particular, wrote the whole bridge section to the song. And these stories just get completely lost. So that really bugged me that that wasn't in there. Similarly, at the end, actually, in the last section of the movie, they've got about a, I don't know, five minute section where they're talking about the impact that the song had. And they fill it up with footage of Lionel singing the song live with some of the other participants at, at, at a concert. I don't know what the concert is. And they sort of fail again to show that the song was, I think it won four Grammy Awards at the 1984 Grammys, including Song of the Year, and they've got Michael on stage with uh, Lionel accepting the award for it. I don't know why that's not in there. And- I know this sounds a little bit like, oh, he, you know, he's just a Michael Jackson fan. He's just annoyed that there's not more Michael Jackson stuff in it. That's really not what's going on. I understand that the, the song itself, the whole idea of it was for it to not be about one person, leave your ego at the door. The song and the documentary is meant to be about all of the people that worked on it together. But Michael wrote the song with John Barnes. It's a Michael Jackson song. Lionel brought two bars of music to the – to the song. The two opening bars are from Lionel. Every single other thing on it are from Michael and his team. And they don't – yes, Michael's voice is included in it, so I can't go as far as saying that they sidelined Michael's voice. They do have an interview of him discussing the song, but the interview they've chosen is very vague and Michael's vaguely discussing the song. I think it was a big miss for them to to not use the deposition where he's discussing the specific aspects that he brought to the song. For that reason, I kind of felt like Michael was, yeah, I do think he was sidelined a little bit in the documentary in favor of the talking heads that they secured. So I feel like this documentary is really crafted around the people they could secure, like Sheila E. and Cindy Lauper. So they got these talking heads and then they've built the narrative a little bit more around them rather than the people that created the song and what it was all about. In saying that, once we get into the second half of the documentary, it sets out to just document what happened on that one night, the recording night, and I think it does that really well. It goes for quite a long time, but they do capture what happened on that night really, really well, which I understand is the main purpose, I guess, of the documentary, to capture that night, which is done really well. So I don't know if I've explained that well enough, Charlie, but um, yeah, I think it's really good. I, I'm excited that heaps of people are excited about it. I'm excited that it's doing well on Netflix, but as a history buff and Michael Jackson buff, I think it missed the mark slightly with detailing the origins of the song and how it was created.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that you I think you're right in the sense that they have interviewed who they've interviewed and they've built the story around the people that they've interviewed. And Lionel, is the half of the songwriting team that's been interviewed and is he, he discusses the writing of the song in a way that is vague. He doesn't suggest that he wrote the whole thing or anything like that. It's not like they're attributing things to him that he may not have done, but I feel that the extent to which Michael did write the song is not properly conveyed. And of course, as you say, there is absolutely no mention of um, John Barnes. And in a sense, okay, you know, nobody knows who John Barnes is. So maybe they would have thought that was a diversion. And they also can't interview him because he's dead. But nonetheless, it means that the story is not entirely accurate. I was really enjoying it up to the point where they actually got into the studio and then for me it became firstly there were things that were frustrating so for example there's an interview with some guy who's saying i was in the studio erecting the lights when michael jackson was recording his vocal and his voice was extraordinary but then the clips that they choose of Michael recording his vocal are actually not the clips that I would choose if I was trying to demonstrate how extraordinary his vocal was, absolutely, and they also keep sort of cutting up so frustratingly, the guy is talking about Michael's amazing vocal, and they keep showing clips of him singing like three words and they're going huh. Ah. Uh, and then stopping and stuff. And it's like, why just show some footage of him actually singing? It's really frustrating. It's like, why would you do that? Little editorial choices like that, which are just a bit, a bit annoying. But also, for me, the section in the studio recording the song is too exhaustive. It goes on way too long it naturally becomes incredibly repetitive because it's them all singing the same song over and over and over again. Yeah. So that gets tiresome. And there's also things that they do, which exacerbate that problem. So for example, they show you the group singing the chorus so many times And it's like, I really do not need to see them singing the chorus like eight different times. You could have showed me one or two. And then there's bits where people are fluffing their lines. And so they keep showing you the same people singing the same section of the song over and over and over again. And to me, it began to feel very claustrophobic. It was like, please. I felt like I was one of those artists trapped in the studio. I was like, please let me out need to get out of here now i'm so sick of being in this room listening to the same people singing the same sentences over and over again it became so repetitive i don't know whether they only had access to a tiny amount of footage or something but i noticed they actually started repeating footage of michael so there's certain clips of michael that get played more
1: than once it's like why you know why I couldn't figure that out either, and I think it might have been either there was restrictions on them as filmmakers. They did have authority to play Michael's music. I noticed "Wanna Be" starting something was at the start of the film, so they must have got permission to do that. But whenever they showed Michael, there was only very, very, very brief like four-second sort of clips of him, and even though they were somewhat frequent, they were very short. So it's either that they were given some kind of restriction or they – were intentionally trying to make him look like just one of the gang rather than one of the key architects of it. And I get the sense that it might be the latter. And maybe they did it with noble intentions. Maybe they were trying to follow that Quincy Jones directive of leave your ego at the door, let's not make this all about Michael, which I do actually respect to some degree, but you can't hide the fact that Michael wrote the song he Stayed long after everybody had left and recorded, you know, beyond that the point they'd already stayed there all night. Those things are just sort of not explored, yes. And,
0: um, I mean, there's things in it that are effective. One thing that I thought was very effective was, um, Bob Geldof's speech, the footage that was captured of Bob Geldof's speech. I thought that was mm-hmm. very powerful. Other stuff I felt was very ineffective. Sheila E.'s contribution, you pointed out, I mean, essentially creates this subplot involving Prince that just doesn't go anywhere. I mean, Prince, depending on which version of the story you believe he either didn't show up because he was too arrogant, or he didn't show up because he was too shy and he didn't like being in big groups of people and he felt intimidated by the amount of sort of legendary artists that were there. But ultimately, he didn't show up. So there's no need to keep talking about him all the way through the film, only for it to go nowhere. So that all felt like a diversion, and then there's a sort of an uncharitable section where they're talking about Algiro being drunk, and they sort of show some <laughs> embarrassing footage of him keep fluffing his lines, which is okay, but it's not really necessary. And after a while, that whole section in the studio just really starts to drag. There's moments of brilliance, the bit where they all break out into the um, Harry Belafonte song. Fantastic. Mm. That'll give you goosebumps. That was amazing. Moments where Stevie Wonder sits down at the piano and impersonates perfectly Bob Dylan's singing voice. Amazing. But there is just a lot of repetition that didn't need to be in there. And then where it really fell down for me was in like the final 10 minutes or so. So you spend an inordinately long amount of time. In fact, when it finished, I was talking to Elise. She told me that the documentary was only about 90 minutes long. I thought it was like two hours long. It felt yeah, so it like long. Um yeah. but then at the end, they sort of they have this section about the impact of the song. And it's it's such a rush job. And yeah. the imp the discussion of the impact of the song is I mean, for example, all the stuff about how many copies it sold, how much money it raised, it's basically just blobbed on the end as, like, white on black text that's on screen for, like, five seconds. It just sort of flashes up on the screen. Oh, we are the world, Sold this many copies It raised this much money. And it's like, hang on a minute, you know, what is the point of spending all this time telling us the story of the song and then mm-hmm. you, it just flippantly at the end, just going, "Yeah, I raised a lot of money anyway." But at the end, so it <laughs> they could have easily they could have easily chopped ten minutes out of the section in the studio, which went on way too long, and had people like Lionel actually saying to the camera, "We sold this many copies." It was so popular that we literally ran out of copies. We had to reprint it, and then we had to reprint it again. It broke the Guinness World Record. It raised this much money. It saved this many lives to actually underscore the impact in a way that is more effective than just flashing it up on screen in some text. That felt like a big miss to me. That felt it felt like you were building up to something, and then it just ended without actually telling you what the ending was. So yeah, that that
1: was. It, I would agree with you. I, I just would have loved to have seen the footage of the Grammys at that moment of of Michael and Lionel and Quincy. I actually can't remember if Quincy's, Quincy was at that Grammy Award ceremony, but certainly Michael and Lionel got on stage and gave a speech for for receiving the Song of the Year Award. Could have even been worth mentioning that
0: the last song Michael ever performed in front of an audience was We Are the World. Um, which you saw. You saw him do that. I was there, yeah. I mean, you know, was it an amazing performance? No, but the crowd loved it. and. It was the end of his performing career, and that was what twenty years later. I think there was just a lot that they could have done that they didn't do, and it 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 felt a bit cobbled together. Like maybe someone discovered that they had access to some footage and said, "Oh, we should turn it into a film." I mean, they got big names involved. You know, they got Bruce Springsteen to sit down for an interview. They got Lionel Richie to sit down for an interview, but Stevie is not there being interviewed which is a shame again there's that whole section about stevie and the swahili so this this was a big failure for me (laughs) well this is why it didn't work for me right so there's two sections and one of them should have been cut out so they subject us to about a five minute section which is all about how lionel richie is the best person you could ever have in charge of We Are, of we are the World, because he is—he will make sure that nothing, no diversions, no tangents, are gone down, and everybody keeps on track and everything is kept in order. And then immediately afterwards, there's another five minute section, which is all about Stevie Wonder mounting this campaign to put Swahili into the song while Lionel Richie just stands there looking like a fucking shop dummy and does nothing. And everybody erupts into a big argument about it. And you're going, well, wh- hang on a minute. What was the point of that preceding five minute section about? Cause that's clearly bollocks. Because there was a big tangent and there was a big argument and he didn't do anything to resolve it. So it's almost like, oh, you've just wasted my time there with five minutes of bullshit. So either they should have kept in the Lionel Richie section and cut out the Swahili section or not. Down the line of Richie's section and kept in the Swahili, but the two of them are directly contradictory things, which happen immediately yeah. after one another. So that's really poor storytelling and poor editing because it's you've got two consecutive sections, one of which undermines the one that precedes it. So
1: that aggravated me as I was watching it. I did like all the stuff in there about things going wrong because it showed like the the time constraints they had. Most people that were there had just left the American Music Awards immediately prior, so they were already exhausted, and then they've come to record this song, and they didn't even finish till like four in the morning or something like that, or something crazy, or maybe it was eight in the morning, Some I don't know what crazy time it was, but it was a fragile experience, and, and little things that were going on were breaking people, <laughs> so the 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 heat from the lights, the arguments. Some you know, like you said, Stevie had this idea we should make this sound more cultural. Let's put some Swahili in there, and then I, I loved all that. I loved like people's own desires coming out and uh, <laughs> the tension that came from that. I enjoyed those moments quite a lot, but like you say, it was it was cobbled together with the talking heads. It kind of suffers a little bit, I think, kind of like the Spike Lee stuff does and Thriller 40 from, I don't think they needed that many talking heads. They definitely could have told the story just as well or better from interviews previous. I'm glad they just used footage of Quincy talking about the song from the time and not from now. He's one person I'm glad that they didn't re-interview, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But there's a moment in the film that I really love because Bob Dylan – Oh my god, he's hilarious to watch in this because he's just like the biggest fish out of water of all time. Like he's a folk singer and he's surrounded by these incredible black R&B soul singers, funk singers. It's it's you know, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder. It is he's standing in between all of them and comp- and he's he's such a different artist to them. And he's obviously extremely uncomfortable during this whole process because he knows that his voice is probably not as suited to singing uh, the choruses like they are, and there's a moment when Quincy comes over and tries to console him and and coaches him really and brings him on board into the song in his own way. And it shows, I think it's a rare glimpse. We don't see this very often, even though we know it's true, we don't see it. it show, it's a demonstration of how great a producer Quincy is and being able to work with individual artists and encourage them to do something they don't even believe they can do. I, lo- I loved that moment i agree with you about there being i think the problem with the talking heads was a lot of
0: the people are now dead so they were interviewing people out of necessity in a way and then what in my opinion has ended up happening is certain people have ended up being given undue prominence because they were interviewed and one that jumps out to me is huey lewis where I, th- I mean, he must tell us that oh, about fifteen times how nervous he was, and it's like, yeah, we know you've already told us. Is they just keep pushing this narrative about trying to big up his part in a way, trying to overegg it? And I, in my opinion, they've only done it because he's being interviewed, and therefore they had him on tape talking about it. But it's such a nothing. You know, his part, he sings half a line of the song or something, and the amount of airtime that he gets is just ridiculous. The way they try and confect it into this sort of drama is just totally undue. You know, it it just sort of reeks of trying to make a story out of something that really is not worth mentioning. So yeah, I I do get the feeling that they've interviewed who they could interview, and then built the story around those people, as opposed to starting with the story, and then figuring out the best way to tell it.
1: Yeah, and that's symptomatic of a lot of Netflix documentaries, in particular. I think it, you know, a lot of them are kind of created uh, in a rush to get more content out, and. I guess it's easy to say that we're people that have spent decades researching every aspect of Michael's life. So we know the story of We Are The World and who was involved and everything like that to a much deeper level than maybe we could expect a Netflix documentary director could do in a matter of weeks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But then again, you know, isn't it the point of a documentary? Isn't it the job of a documentary filmmaker to do the research properly? Maybe I'm being a bit nitpicky. I get it. I get it. I'll probably get emails and different things from people saying I'm being too negative and nitpicky. I get it. The documentary is about the night. It's about the event, the song. Maybe their purpose wasn't to go back and exhaustively detail who created it. I just think a few of the key players, including Michael and John Barnes, who were the architects of the song, were sidelined in the film. Anyway what would you give it? I
0: would, I would say it's somewhere between, I I would say it's around a seven out of 10, which would put it around the three and a half star mark that you gave it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that feels fair. It's a perfectly functional documentary. I'm not saying it's a terrible documentary. I just, I just didn't think it was amazing at all. So yeah, it was better, better than thriller 40.
1: Well, it's funny how people react to things like that because I remember if you remember back to last year after I'd watched Thriller Forty, I, I didn't think it was great or even good. I think I like I, but I didn't have a negative experience watching it because I expected that it would be terrible because it was from the estate. So I came, I came away from it just having enjoyed the bits that were in it that were good, frustrated still that it was okay, I just want to see the victory tour, please. That's mainly what I want to see, nothing else. But I felt like I had terribly low expectations, so I just enjoyed the good bits of it and just moved on with my life. With this one, I actually felt more frustrated with it because they had the ability, they had the source material, the permission, and the ability to create the perfect We Are The World documentary, and they just stumbled right at the end. They were so close to the finishing line, it could have been five stars. They just needed to call us, Charlie. That's all they had to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One day when we're in charge of everything. Yes. will be better. All right. It's been great speaking with you, Charlie, for the past few hours. Can't believe it. Season 10 of the MJ cast. I've got to pinch myself with that one. Where can people find you online? Twitter at, at C.E.
0: C-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N. And uh, I'm on Instagram. The same, except you have to stick "journal" on the end. C. E. Thompson, J. O. U. R. N.
1: O. Great. And for those of us who want to find the MJ Cast online, we are the MJ Cast at Twitter x whatever it's called instagram threads mastodon just search for the mjcast you'll find us and you can also email us at the mjcast at icloud.com we love receiving email from people thoughts on shows that kind of thing we'd also love it if we could kick off season 10 with some reviews Uh, if you'd like to head on over to uh, spotify or apple podcasts and drop a review wherever you listen to us uh, give us a rating and review that would be really really appreciated It, it helps with the visibility of the show. We're also on YouTube. Uh, You can listen to our shows there. We delay those a little bit and put them out a a little bit later. We have lots of exciting episodes planned for the season. Hopefully some more special episodes with Michael Jackson collaborators. Uh, We'd love to talk to some authors uh, of Michael Jackson books that are coming out, maybe documentary filmmakers, all of those kind of things. We'd love to do some more roundtables. We've got an exciting year ahead with 2024 covering the Michael biopic as well as it gets filmed ready for its release next year. Until next time, keep Michaeling.